This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 26, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. This year just keeps rolling, and whether or not you're reluctantly spending time alone or reluctantly attending a large family gathering, the lessons of this year have probably already been learned by the great Stoics of the past. Ryan Holiday is author of the new book, Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. We spoke earlier this month. It is at times like this when I feel the need to remind our listeners that the Cato Institute is not named for Cato, but for a series of letters called Cato's Letters that were produced uh, in Great Britain and were meant to uh, get some more support uh, on that side of the pond for the American Revolution. So, uh, Ryan, thank you for. agreeing to sit down and and talk with me for a while here. Uh, Let's start with this. Where was Stoicism born, and uh, what were the critical elements at its birth? It's it's born in ancient Greece, and then it makes its way into Rome as sort of, or you could say Rome sort of absorbs everything from Greece. And we get Stoicism as kind of... uh, a combination of a personal philosophy as well as a civic philosophy, a sort of a sense of duty and courage and strength and wisdom. It's it's sort of the the guiding, it's the guiding light of 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 Rome's elite essentially. And and to go to your point about Cato's letters, it that example, that sort of brief period of human greatness becomes an inspiration not just for the American Revolution, but for sort of political revolutions, uh, you know, before and, and after. Obviously, there were many generations of, of Stoics, but how did that change? What were, what were the core elements of the beginning of Stoicism, and how did that change over time? The, the early Stoics are very much influenced by the Cynics, so this sort of rejection of worldly goods, worldly desires, uh, you know, a, a sort of a very inward-looking sort of insular philosophy, not not all that different than, say, a Buddhism, where there's certainly some Epicurean uh, overtones to it as well. The Stoicism that we know now that that, that really is well-defined by a, by a Cato or a Seneca or a Marcus Aurelius is what happens when that early Stoicism about sort of perfecting the inner uh, being gets sort of transmorgified onto this idea of participating in politics, participating in public life, you know, sort of trying to to bring these virtues into the into the public sphere in, into governance. What did that look like? I mean, when when Stoics who were publicly engaged, people who were either uh, leaders in government or uh, uh, were looking to be, what did they bring with them? out of that philosophy that was appealing. When you look at someone like Cato, you get a sense of sort of uh, personal ethics, personal responsibility, an emphasis on on sort of freedom, on liberty. Um, but but most of all, I think, I think what you really get is a strong sense of competence as well. So the, the four Stoic virtues are, are really this. It's courage, justice, wisdom and self-discipline. And so for the Stoics, these were not just things that you try to practice at home, you know, trying to to eat well and exercise and read books. 
but also what is one's duty when you know uh, someone attempts to violate the the laws of the state when someone attempts to corrupt or or to steal from the public good. So I think what what you see in the Stoics are these sort of um, sort of singular figures that stand out against the the trends or the zeitgeist of their time. You know, um, in in a way, Cato and Caesar. Are are almost perfect ends, uh, opposite ends of the same spectrum. They're both great men. They're both brilliant. They're both ambitious. But you know, you see in Caesar a sort of a, a solely a personal ambition, and then you see in Cato a sense of, you know, sort of civic purpose and a a sense of tradition and and conservative conservatism in the best sense, not a reactionary uh, sort of rejection of. Of what's happening now, but a sense of like, hey, these morals, these traditions, what what the Romans called the the mas morium, the old ways, they're the old ways for a reason. So uh, I'm trying to transplant uh, those ideas to a modern political context, and uh, cynically, I say, boy, nobody's buying. I, I suppose. I mean, uh, th- there is this sort of the, probably the closest that modern Stoicism has come to the political scene uh, was, you know, James Stockdale's run for vice president. He's famously a student of Epictetus. You know, he gets up there and he says, who am I? Why am I here? And he, you know, he meant that in a philosophical context. Right. And and Dennis Miller's joke is that he was committing the the one uh, impardonable sin uh, of of modern politics, which is he was bad on television. You know that sort of existential question does not uh, work well in a in a much more superficial context. Well, just the notion of duty as something that uh, or some restraint when it comes to lawmakers who are most accustomed to handing out goodies. Well, so that was that was the joke about Cato in in the old days was that um, as 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 strict as he was, he was also commonly used as an excuse by his fellow politicians when they didn't want to do something, when the public wanted something that was say impossible. Instead of owning that difficulty, instead of you know making the hard decision themselves, they would often say, uh, I'm sorry, Cato does not allow it. And so Cato was kind of this check on the system in his own time. But I do think, you know, if we were looking for another modern parallel, uh, you know, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis, you have an example of a man who who takes a job for an administration that he, you know, doesn't really support, but feels like, you know, you go where duty calls you. And at the same time, tries to do his job within the the difficulties of those circumstances, ultimately resigns on principle, but by the same token, uh, you know, refuses to criticize that administration for almost two years, believing that, you know, you have to give presidents a chance to, to succeed or fail on their own merit. So I think as you could look at the world today in sort of despair, or you could just say like, hey, these figures are few and far between, but let's let's kind of hold up those examples and, and celebrate them where we see them. You detail uh, the lives of several Stoics in ancient times. Which of them, in your view, based on their writings or, or the, their speeches or anything, which of them developed Stoicism most? 
That's a great question. I mean, I, I think what what's so fascinating about the Stoics is that there are the there are the great writers of Stoicism. So from Cicero, for instance, we probably learn the most about Stoicism. Uh, he preserves all these ancient texts. He writes about it the most beautifully. But he he's, he sort of never actually manages to live by the philosophy. Uh, never manages to put it sort of above his personal ambitions. So on the one on the one hand, we're deeply indebted to Cicero, but also he's more of probably a cautionary tale than anything else. You look at someone like Rutilius Rufus, who we know next to nothing about, um, except this sort of singular example in his life, where um, as a as a governor, I believe in the Asian province of the Roman Emperor of the Roman Empire, he's he's sort of um, stands out for his lack of corruption and indeed puts in in place a number of reforms that essentially block uh the the the, the Roman elites from looting this province and and in a sort of a, a magnificent irony it's those elites who bring up Rutilius Rufus on false charges accusing him of precisely the thing that they're mad at him for preventing them from doing and and Rutilius Rufus sort of takes this stand. He's brought up on these false charges. He refused to, refuses to dignify them even with a defense. He's exiled and, and he's, he's given one sort of token bit of, of mercy, which is that he's allowed to choose where he goes into exile. And he chooses to go back to the province that he was just driven out of. Um, and they accept him with open arms because he was incorruptible and he had served those people well. And so what you see in the writings of the later Stoics is just an incredible amount of admiration and respect for Rufus. And, and so in a way, his actions in this one moment speak louder than the writings of his peer, Cicero, and they're alive at the same time. Will Durant, the great uh, historian and writer and writer of history, uh, you know what I'm going to say. He said, a nation is born Stoic and dies Epicurean. At its cradle, to repeat a thoughtful adage, religion stands and philosophy accompanies it to the grave. Um, I, uh, Aaron Powell, uh, one of my colleagues at the Cato Institute, uh, pointed that line out to me a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. What are the prospects for Stoicism right now? It seems that the United States, uh, to paraphrase Tony Soprano, feels like it might be at the end of something. It's a great. It's a great line. Uh, of course, it it sort of gets both Stoicism and Epicureanism wrong, uh, which I'm sure Durant knew. <laughs> There's this big distinction, right, between sort of uppercase Stoicism and lowercase Stoicism, uppercase Epicureanism, lowercase Epicureanism. So, as a philosophy, you know, the Stoics and the Epicureans are quite similar. Um, the big distinction is 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 actually for the Stoics a belief that that one should participate in politics. Uh, for the Epicureans, it was sort of retreat to the garden and focus on, on your sort of inner serenity. Um, but, but if we take uh, Stoic, lowercase Stoicism to mean sort of strong-willed and determined and courageous, and lowercase Epicureanism to mean hedonist and, and sort of selfish and, and, and uh, self-absorbed, then, then I think that probably makes sense. You know, it, it, it's an interesting thing not to get too political, but I noticed. So when Stacey Abrams lost her race in Georgia, she said, uh, I'm not going to be stoic about this. I'm going to fight. 
which is again another miss uh, of of what stoicism versus epicure you know what stoicase uppercase and lowercase stoicism means so you know again regardless of what you think of 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 abram's politics i do like the idea that here's someone who loses and instead of throwing up their hands instead of uh you know believing that that that, that all is lost decides to throw herself into a project that you know moves democracy forward in 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 some small way. So I I think it's really easy to look at what's happening and say there's no room for stoicism here all is lost we're at the end of something. At the same time one of the benefits of studying history is it's hard not to see how prevalent that exact feeling was at moments that in retrospect turned out to be not even close to the end or even the beginning of the end. And so I, I do retain hope in the sense of uh, nobody knows what the future holds. And, and uh, you know, if, if you'd asked me in 1968, uh, if we were at the end of something, uh, or, or I, I think most people probably would have agreed. Given what the U.S. and the world has been through in the last eight months or so, what do the Stoics have to tell us about how we ought to feel, how we ought to react. As it happens quite a bit, I mean, Marcus Aurelius is writing meditations during the Antonine Plague, which is uh, pretty incredible and, and would make would make uh, you know COVID-19 look like a walk in the park. I mean, uh, the Antonine Plague lasts for 15 years. Uh, it kills you know, millions in, upon millions of Romans. Um, one of the things that struck me rereading meditations this year during the pandemic, Marcus Aurelius, he talks about, he goes like, uh, there's sort of two kinds of plagues, right? He's like the 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 plague, the, the the literal plague, he says, can destroy your life. But he says there's this other pestilence out there that can destroy your character. And which one should you fear most? And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately and, and sort of observing, and I'm, I'm sure you have as well, and friends and colleagues as as well as public figures is there are there are plenty of people who've been infected with covid-19 i mean we know we we can track those numbers quite quite well but there's another percentage of the population that's been infected with all sorts of other dangerous viruses right the the virus of conspiratorial thinking the virus of of selfishness and callousness also among you know relatively smart people the virus of sort of magical thinking right oh this doesn't apply to me oh this will go away someone else will do this or you know of course i know i should be wearing a mask i know i should be social distancing i know i should be safe but you know this is my sister's wedding and uh we're all going <laughs> to dance inside you know in a in a small enclosed room because this is important right like there's this sort of um this tendency to think like the rules apply to everyone else or the, the the inexorable logic of a pandemic applies to every nation but America. And so I, I think watching the way that this virus has destroyed the character of, of people on all sides of the political spectrum, friend, like I've, I've just, it's like, oh man, I have a number of friends who I thought were good people that turns out are very much not good people, you know? Um, so I think the Stoics would say, the, the vast majority of what's happening in this pandemic is outside our individual control, but our character, our individual decisions remain in our control. And that's probably where we should start. Uh, and I know personally, a lot of people who at the beginning of this said, this is going to last a long time and I'm going to make a conscious decision 
about how I'm going to weather it right now. That's that's right. And and you know, there's also the people that went into it and said, oh, this will be over in two weeks. Oh, this will be over by the summer. Oh, this will be over by the election. And what what the Stoics would say is this idea of like, hey, I'm just gonna wait this out, right? Like uh I'm just gonna I'm just gonna watch Netflix until this is all over. The the idea of memento mori, that life is short, that that you you have to adjust quickly to circumstances and find a way to live inside them and get the most of them because you don't know is really, really important. I mean, like, let, let's say I'm not an epidemiologist, so I, I'm not able, let's call these made up numbers because they are, but let's say, you know, you know, 250,000 Americans have died so far. Let's say the number is going to hit 400,000. That means uh, 150,000 people could be you or I, uh, are, projected to die of a thing that we've yet to be infected with, right? And so for the Stoics, this idea of being sort of a member of the walking dead was kind of a very real metaphor they would have thought about to say like, hey, you know, you don't have time to waste. You don't, you can't take things for granted. You can't just assume that, you know, I mean, what about all the people who've been diagnosed with cancer since March, right? They were worried about one thing, and it turns out that life had a totally different thing in store for you. So the urgency of life is, is a really core Stoic teaching. Yeah, even though the uh, the death rates for this illness may be uh, fairly low, uh, particularly among people in in my age group and and younger, uh, because of the uh, its ever presence in in the media, um, I have given myself moments to stop and think. Well, I might be dead in three weeks, so sure. maybe I should think more carefully about the decision I'm making right now. I, it, and it's not just about self-preservation, right? It's like I could no, be dead it's in, not. I could be dead in three weeks. Why am I getting angry about this, right? Why am I why am I wasting my time uh, holding on to some grudge or or some regret? And I think the other thing for the Stokes too. I mean, Marcus Aurelius ultimately dies of the Antonine Plague, but but before that loses, you know, many children, uh, you know, in a, in a time of very high infant mortality. It's also about not taking other people for granted, right? I think you've got grandparents and you go, oh, okay, you know, they've got, you know, many years left. You really don't have any sense of that. There, none of these things are guaranteed. And I think that's an interesting argument I've seen people make with the averages. Sure, the averages are very low, uh, let's say, of the death rate. But the average doesn't care about the individuals who are subject to, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? So we often go, oh, there's the, the, the chance of survival is very high. Sure. But tell that to the 250,000 people who did die, right? The, the, the averages are no solace to the individual. And I think, you know, um, just because, uh, you know, the actuary tables say you're going to live to be 75, it's not going to protect you from that bus that hits you when you're crossing the street without paying attention. Where did Stoicism fade out in its sort of initial run, and uh, what caused it? Was it enormous wealth? Was it uh, good times that that made people sort of uh, leave it leave it be? It's a, it's a strange phenomenon, and one I don't have a great answer to because what is so interesting is that it, it reaches its apotheosis with Marcus Aurelius, the most powerful man in the world, the only real example of a philosopher king that we've ever had. You'd think that would have been this, this, the culmination that would sort of set in motion a very long sort of reign for the philosophy, but 
you know, it's this tragic, it's this tragic scenario where Marcus Aurelius, his son Commodus, is if Marcus Aurelius is the philosopher king, his son Commodus is the opposite of the philosopher king in every way. Probably a great bit of evidence that if you're reliant on a philosopher king to make your system of government work, it's probably not a great system of government. Uh, but but I, I think the idea that that uh, it sort of reaches this moment of perfection, but that moment turns out to be really fleeting and that Stoicism has a pretty precipitous decline after that, although it, it does get rediscovered in the Renaissance and 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 then in the Victorian era. Um I think I think it's just kind of a, in a way, a, a sort of a stoic idea that th- these sort of moments that uh, all glory is fleeting, uh, that 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 uh, nothing gold can say. Ryan Holiday's latest book is Lives of the Stoics: The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.